Hi, I'm Deborah Hamilton. Welcome to my podcast, Why Do Pets Matter? Ten years ago, with my iPhone and a script, I recorded the first episode of the Ultimate Pet Resolution Summit, which chatted with experts about conflicts over animals. Our conversations were intimate, honest, and illustrated how disagreements over animals occur and how those disagreements can reshape people's lives and relationships. In November 2019, I started Why Do Pets Matter, a new podcast that continued these informative discussions. I'm so excited to have you here with me, continuing my exploration into a more meaningful conversation about why pets matter to all of us. My guests and I will share ideas, stories, and experiences straight from the heart, unscripted and holistic. From the bravest moments to the most brokenhearted, we will explore how to resolve disagreements over animals differently. One thing I know for sure is I want to have more meaningful conversations that will help all of us unlock that deeply felt human-animal bond that drives the emotions of conflict. So today we have the wonderful Jeremy Cohn of Boston Dog Lawyers as our guest. We talk about breeder contracts, what owners should ask before they sign a breeder contract, and what breeders should really put in their contract to protect themselves, but also foster communication, transparency, and collaboration. So let's go see what Jeremy and I talk about now. Hi, everyone. Deborah Hamilton, Hamilton Law Mediation, and of course, the Why Do Pets Matter podcast. Today, I have my dear friend Jeremy Cohn back of Boston Dog Lawyers. We're going to talk about what people really need to look at when they're writing a contract to sell a puppy or place a puppy by rescue, and when they're adopting a puppy from a rescue or buying a puppy from a breeder. Because often, Jeremy and I, our biggest lament is nobody ever reads the contract. They're so happy about getting the dog, they never read the contract. And then people's dogs get taken back because they didn't read the fine print about whether or not you have to bathe the dog or get it groomed every six months, or whether or not you have to uh, take it to a training class or you have to finish it or you have to allow the co-owner to take it back and breed it. So Jeremy and I are going to get into the nitty gritty of what you need to ask, how you need to ask it, and how mentorship and collaboration are really a lot better than confiscation. So Jeremy, thanks so much for coming back. Oh, I do love being here. Thank you, Deborah. Uh, you know, we talk about this all the time, you and I, where people come into our offices and they've signed these contracts they've never read. And then expect us to fight on their behalf when all the terms are against them and unfavorable to them. There's so many simple things to do. You know, I part a big reason I have this firm is to empower pet owners that we are we we have rights too. We have rights too in every situation. And with these contracts that you both you and I have seen with breeders in uh, rescues for that matter. Nothing needs to be a surprise. And you need to have the ability to walk away. Not a, These are not contracts that are boilerplate. Not everybody uses the same type of contract. And a lot of these contracts weren't written by attorneys. I'm so glad you said that. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I really believe that. They were written from the person who said, what do I want? And they just sat down and wrote everything they want and every guideline and and which are super strict without any thought about the what what we always call, uh, um the unequal bargaining power. You know, yeah. these have to be 
there has to be equal input or at least equal understanding as to what the terms are. And they, they can't be what we call unconscionable or so, so severely um, strict on one party that it, it, it becomes too easy for them to breach. I think I have a simple, simple solution for everybody. And I'm actually willing to share it, despite that it, it could lead to less business. That's okay. I want less business too, because you and I both know the emotional toll it takes on our clients. Right. It's all about the emotion, my idea. And it's probably not just my idea, but uh, when you want to go to a, a, a breeding uh, facility or see the dog or something, don't. Ask to see the contract. A lot of them will put their contract online. The thing is you want to make sure that that's a current contract. And then you want to have a conversation before you ever talk about the dog. You want to talk about the contract. You will do yourself a disservice if you see the dog first or yep. you see the puppies first, because now your emotions take over and you are not reading every line of the contract. You're distracted by this, these big eyes that are looking at you saying, take me home. And you've got to look at the contract first because you are entering into a contractual relationship that makes you uh, extremely liable for many things and provides many obligations on your part. It's not just taking the dog home and treating it with love. So you need to look at the contract before you look at the dog. And then you're thinking with your head and not your heart. Right. But breeders, salesmen, people know that if you look at the product first or the goods first, you're going to skip over the, the terms of the contract. I would too. We, we all do. We don't look at, at, at the fine print, but they will, they, there's a, a lot of breeders and, and rescue facilities will get you on that fine print. And suddenly you have to hire a lawyer. You and wouldn't have to if you just looked at the terms and said, you know what? I don't agree with that, that, that. I'd like to see these changes. If they say no, you know what? Breeding is a business. There's so many other vendors you can go to yep. that you vote with your feet and, and leave. Well, now it's really interesting because there aren't very many dogs. So people are taking on these contracts because they want the dog. Their kids want the dog. The family wants the dog. Um, I think your your practice and my practice have so many people come in who never read the contract. They just signed it. And if they read the contract, they looked at these things. And if they're a little worried about it, uh, they asked the breeder, well, what about paragraph three? And I've had this in my office many times. You know, what about paragraph three? But it says that if I don't do training by the time they're 12 months of age, you can take the dog back. Oh, I don't enforce that. And I always say, well, if they say that to you, have them write it yes. on the end of that sentence. Yes. Because otherwise, if they say it to you verbally, it's amazing how many people, and I know this has never happened in your office, but how many people who are in disagreement forget what they say. They just, I, I never said that. I never said that. And it's getting worse and worse because people really do want these, these dogs. They want the rescue dog and people who say to me, well, and, and Jeremy, we had to talk about this before we got online. Well, I rescued my dog. And I said, well, you're probably subjected to the same kind of difficult contract terms that a breeder is. Maybe your dog isn't going to get bred, but there are several clauses in there. And I know, and you know, that several of our colleagues who are attorneys, animal activists, animal advocates who adopt dogs from rescues, never read the contract and they're attorneys. Right. If there's, and there's a lot, there's, it's such a problem for pet owners that now pretty much every state 
governs these contracts uh, under the consumer protection laws. And you have to think about that, that you are a consumer and you certainly have rights, but even still state law and, um, and the, these contracts regarding the health of the animal you're getting, it is so uneven and unfair. You, that you should know the state law and some breeders, pet sellers, will provide the state law to you, but you still should look it up to make sure they, they're citing the most current one. You have such limited time during which if the dog has a congenital or contagious infectious disease to prove that, it, that your dog does. And if you don't capture this within, uh, it's usually seven to 14 days and have your own vet review, uh, evaluate the dog and then notify these places within two days. The time frames are ridiculous. They're unfair, and you will be shut out. And then the other thing is you want to know what the remedies are if you do get a dog who has a congenital defect or an infectious disease. Are you paying for the care? Most often, the breeder says, no, just give us the dog back. And suddenly, and nobody wants to give the dog back. No matter how sick, injured a dog is, you fall in love with the dog, you feel this sense of obligation, and then you think, if I give this pet back, what's going to happen to it? Right. And we all know you the breeders who, uh, if they think something's going to impact their line, not every breeder, but they might just, that dog may, that could be the end of the line for the dog if it does have some type of congenital defect. So, You've got to know from the very beginning, what are my rights from, from day one? And what are the remedies if something's gone wrong? Because the remedy of just give the dog back and get a refund, it's not practical. So many people just keep the dog and suddenly they're in for 15 or 20,000 uh, for medical bills and they're not getting- Legal bills. And then legal bills. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Somebody said to me the other day, well, I'll just sue them. And I go, okay, so let's talk about that. So the dog cost you $4,000. Um, you have a bill outstanding at the vet for $4,000. And now how much do you think hiring an attorney to take this to court is going to cost? And how much do you think the court is going to award you in that situation, um, even if you're found to be correct? Are they going to do $12,000 or are they going to do $4,000 or maybe in the middle, 8,000, so you're still out, however many thousands of dollars. That's why I love when you said, ask for a copy of the contract first. That's like my mantra. You need to ask, my sister is buying a dog right now. And, and I said, Did you get a copy of the contract? And she goes, no. I said, you need to get a copy of the contract. And then you need to send it to me um, to let me look at it. I said, so that I can tell you what questions to ask and what confirmations you need and what you know things you might wanna change or walk away. And so the breeder actually said, no one's ever asked me for a copy of the contract before they came. And uh, this was clearly a contract written, as you so eloquently put it, uh, by the breeder with a lot of ideas of what she wanted. Um, and, and I find that a lot of these things are against public policy because, you know, how do you how do you put these kind of things in? The dog has to be in a fenced in yard. The dog has to be walked three hours a day. The dog has to be um, with you all the time. I always say to breeders who have five page five page contracts, are you driving by this person's house every day to make sure that every one of these terms 
are enforced. I said, because if three years down the road, they've never had a fenced in yard. And then you say, I'm taking the dog back because you're in a fenced in yard. I said, you're going to have a moment, I think, with a really intelligent judge. And I might be wrong, Jeremy, so correct me, that says, wait a minute, this dog's been with Mrs. Smith for three years. She's never had a fenced in yard. You never said a word about it now. But now that you've seen the dog and it's really nice and you co-own it, you want it back. Uh, That's my mission is to challenge these breeder contracts. And uh, because I've got to know, how has this been allowed to happen over the last several decades? Has anyone challenged it? And when you look up the case law, most of it, when it comes to animals and breeding, has to do with the late 1800s, early 1900s, when animals were bred and sold for, for work. Uh, to, to be uh, productive members of a farm or for food. Very little of the case law has to do with, with breeding dogs for companion animals where they don't have an actual purpose. So if you were getting horses and there was a defect, of course, you don't care because you're only thinking about that in the, at the time in the late 1800s and early 1900s. How much work they could do. Yeah. So this, this, this one's not working hard. I don't mind. But now... We don't look at our animals across the board. We don't look at animals that way anymore. And I just feel that there's this this unevenness. I'm not saying that breeders, that breeder contracts are bullying contracts at all. I'm just saying they've been allowed to evolve into this, a very unfair, um, inequitable document. And it, it, uh, one thing that that has to be done is, the challenge on the fact that they're unreasonable. I, in, in my research, it seems that if a breeder tells you exactly what food, uh, what naming convention, um, when to spay or neuter and uh, what training and when, and, and gives you certain deadlines, that's micromanagement that could be unenforceable because it's unreasonable. If they give you suggestions, you should have the dog trained you know, in this format or by age one and try to give a food that has less grain or some, some recommendations is different than you, 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 a contract in a contract, you can't breach a recommendation, but you can breach a requirement and you want to make sure the difference between what's a recommendation, and what's a requirement, because even though to me, it's counterintuitive that once you've sold a dog, you now want to keep up on it and maybe even bring it back to your, your, into your family as a breeder, um, they will do this. There is a mission here that we only sell to the best possible owners and our dogs have the greatest possible lives because we, we, we make sure they maintain it and they will bring that dog back in, especially rescues and shelters. They have people that monitor Facebook and they're looking for a violation. For instance, if you uh, adopted a cat, and you sign the contract that you will not have that cat outdoors and you post something that says, oh, for the first time, my cat got to enjoy the spring weather in my yard. I get those calls from the rescues. You need to get go to court. And I've done that. And I hate that. And I don't want to do that anymore and get that cat back because her feet were never supposed to touch outdoors. So they're watching you. It doesn't end when you sign the contract and go home. It's not yeah. just about paying the money. And yeah, it doesn't end there. Most people think, well, you know, I bought the dog. And so, so as a, as a breeder and as a, as a person who helps rescues and TNRs and all the groups, I always say to them, listen, you have to have that conversation 
continuously and keep those lines of communication open because if in fact the cat was outside in a harness walking on the grass well that might be a really great thing for that cat that might be something that that cat enjoys and maybe you can um have a conversation well if you're going to take the cat outside this is what you need to do why why wouldn't a rescue or a breeder of a dog or a cat want to have their owners if they have a question feel free to call without judgment. And we both know that both rescues and breeders have a lot of judgment around what pet owners may or may not do or know because these are their pets and their companion animals, they're members of the family. They're they're not, you know, show dogs or whatever. They're not working dogs at the time. They're my pet, they sleep on my bed. So yeah, I really wanna take them out and do this or do that. And the breeder goes ballistic. And I usually say to the breeders, have you spoken to the owner since they took the dog home? And they go, well, no. And they said, well, how can you now call them up and say, I saw on Facebook that you took this out and did this and did that. And it says in the contract, you can't do that. I said, that to me, that is a violation of your responsibility, maybe not under the contract, but as a seller of merchandise, of not keeping in touch with someone to make sure that they are, um, you know what they're doing with the dog and they're getting great guidance and mentorship. And that's, I think, what's missing. And it might not be enforceable. And I know I try because a lot of it, a lot of pet owners don't want that breeder up their butt sniffing all the time um, or the rescues. But quite frankly, there is a, there is a way to create a collaborative relationship if you're not judging them, if you're not criticizing them, if if you aren't, you know, ironclad, iron fisted, because there's always, as Bill Yuri from up in your neck of the woods said, um, you know, there's a third way. And so my way is what I want. Your way is what you did. What can we do in the middle to make sure the dog or cat benefits? Sure. And it, exactly right. There's it doesn't, it's not black and white. We're talking about an animal with a finite life. Can't we figure this out? You know, everything's negotiable, but you touched upon it when you just said, um, you know, they're merchandise. So um, as much as we don't like lawyers like you and I to think that, to know that dogs are looked at as property, yep. this is where it's actually beneficial because these are goods and they're, all transactions and sales of dogs or cats, they're governed by what's called the Uniform Commercial Code because it's a sale of goods. So pet owners have rights. And also because it's a sale of goods and governed by this sort of national universal um, rule or um, platform, the Uniform Commercial Code, there's all sorts of warranties that come with the purchase that even though the contract that you sign doesn't say it they're implied and no matter what happens unless you they're expressly agreed to to be canceled uh, pet owners have more rights than a contract will show them and we're not going to sit here today and tell them all of that but just because a breeder or it says to you no we don't do that we don't take back or we don't pay for that that doesn't have to be true you don't have to take their word for it. You don't have to hear them say, we win every case uh, when this happens or we never lose. No, no, it's it's a changed time. And uh, there's lawyers like us around the country who can help with that. And so again, we don't like pets as property, but there's a benefit to that as well uh, under the law that a lawyer would know how to tap into. 
So it's interesting you brought that up because I've been um, opposing because I sometimes have the breeder. I sometimes have, and I usually do co-ownership disagreements because those are really big issues. And first of all, we talked about the price of hiring an attorney to help you because that can be sometimes really expensive or to defend you, to help you enforce your contract or to defend you against someone enforcing the contract because nobody ever sits down and has a conversation because that's against the, that's like sort of against the code. If we could build into every contract, the ability to sit down and have a conversation, maybe with a neutral, so that somebody can hold a safe space to hear Jeremy's point of view under the contract and hear Deborah's point of view under the contract and find the common ground they have. So then they can really progress in a positive way instead of just the two things that Jeremy did that I'm going to take him to the mat for, um, or the two things that Deborah did that Jeremy's going to take me to the mat for. Instead of those two things, think about what we did really well. We raised the dog well, we trained the dog, the dog received, you know, two or three CDs or something. And and let's look at that. And okay, so I didn't finish his championship. And no, I didn't give him back to you to breed twice. And how can we work around that? Because it's written in this contract that you were supposed to get his championship and you were supposed to let me breed him twice and blah, blah, blah. And I sit there and I go, you've been friends for five years. The dog is five years old. And now you can't find a way to figure out how to um, have a relationship. And I don't know how many of these you've had. I've had a number where these attorneys, our colleagues, our brethren and sisterin, um, come in and just ride roughshod uh, and enforce the contract and tell the pet owner um, or the co-owner, you know, you lose. Read the contract, you lose. And I sit there and I just go, okay, so it's going to cost my client about five grand minimum to have me go to court and make sure that this is, you know, um, adjudicated. And the attorney will not let the parties have a conversation because they're in it for the money. And I know that you and I have had this conversation. They're not in it for the ability to find a resolution that's best for the pet. They're in it to be right, not to get it right. Uh, Well said. There's a uh, a breeder out of um, North Carolina, sells mini golden doodles. And he sold to a pocket of people up here in the neighborhood uh, in Massachusetts, and who all prepared for a mini golden doodle. Well, it ends up they have these 60 and 70 pound dogs. And uh, the breeder, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't know how it happened, but they they got something that they didn't purchase. But at this point, they love them. It, yeah, they're not going to give them back, but it's really complicated their lives in the sense that one family had little little kids and they wanted a little dog um, or they well, had they get a weight restriction in their, in their yes. place of, yeah. And the other lawyer, the opposing counsel, we just, from hello, we, we fought the whole time yeah. because she said, no matter what, the only remedy is you have to return the dog. And no, that is not the only remedy. You have violated the Consumer Protection Act and there's other remedies to that. And every state has this Consumer Protection Act. But to be so, uh, if they don't return the dog, they're not, then they don't get any money. And by the way, you will post this review that we're going to write for you uh, about how good the, the breeding entity is. Where has, how has this happened? How has this developed? How has this been so neglected that breeders are suddenly 
believe that under the law, they're so powerful. And it's time to challenge that. We're here. We're here to challenge that. And um, I think of it like this. If you bought a car, when you buy a car, they recommend what type of fuel, recommend when you should have an oil change, um, recommend when you should bring it in for to check all the fluids. But they don't mandate it. But you know who does mandate it? Oftentimes when you lease a vehicle, because they tell you, you must use this. They're getting it back. <laughs> yes, you must. They know when you've got, got your oil changed. They, they track all that and they get the reports. And so to me, when you buy a dog with all these things you must do, not things you could do, it's a lease. In many states, especially here in Massachusetts, leasing dogs is illegal. Right. So I want to challenge one of these contracts to say, this is not this was not a, a, a purchase or a sale. This was a lease and leases are illegal. And um, if for a variety of reasons, many states and there's recently been significant writing about this on a national level about leasing dogs, because it sounds like not a bad plan. But then you find out the reason leases aren't allowed is because you end up paying $10,000 for a $700 dog because of the finance charges and pay over time. But um, if it's a lease, it's governed by a different set of rules. So I, I haven't had the right case yet to bring that. And a lot of times it's because, as you pointed out, I want to show the economics of the case to the person. Say, do you really want to be in for all this money uh, at the end of the day? But um, pet owners have rights. They do. They do. And they have to. So so they have to learn the language that um, puts the breeder at ease, but also enables the breeder to understand they want to be partners. So there are owners that don't want anything to do with the breeder. And then, of course, the breeder goes into orbit. But if you're a new pet owner, you should want, especially if you're buying a dog that this person is breeding specifically, either a, a designer breed or a preservationist breed, like a golden retriever or a golden doodle or whatever, you really do want to keep in touch with them because there are certain things that that dog's going to go through during its life. And so if, if you're not in touch with them, you're not going to know that this is normal or abnormal. And so you really want to retain that relationship. And it's on, I believe it's on the breeder to, re to retain that relationship. But I also think that um, a good pet owner can also create that good relationship that keeps them in the loop so that when things go awry, they have that conversation. This is what I'm working toward. And you and I have talked about this so much about making it uh, part of the conversation they have. You know, what happens if something goes wrong? What are we going to do? Because when they sign the contract, the next thing is there is only going to court. That's it. There's only going to court. And I'm trying to do an interim step where you actually build in some way to have a conversation so that you take it off that high level of emotional energy and you say, okay, you know, both of you definitely are in a different place. Let's see where we can go from here. Because as you said, you want to be economically transparent with your clients. This is not a cheap thing to do to go to court and, and either dismiss a contract or uphold a contract. So you really want to make sure that everybody knows what's in it. And uh, you and I have both had attorneys who just speak to, I know I have one that speaks to me as if I'm an idiot. Um, and didn't I read the contract? And it says this, and that's what's going on. And I, I often say, well, I read it, I said, but I think that probably under the UCC, it's not really enforceable. 
But yes, it's going to cost my client $5,000 to enforce or to find out that it's not enforceable. And it, can't we find a way to go forward? And these people, there's a there's a woman attorney who um, thinks that she is going to, and she has said it to me several times, I am going to give breeders the right to enforce their contracts. You might have run into her. Uh, well, here's the thing. What pet owners have the right to do in the in a reason, a one one reason why folks like us exist in the idea of mediating or or trying to at least be collaborative. If you're if you're an attorney and you're you you're on one side, I'm on, I'm on the other. Why can't we collaborate to help these people retain a relationship because they have a common denominator, the dog. Right. And if not, see, we provide a forum. Mediators can provide a forum. If not, then the pet owner is going to take to social media and they're going to take what should be a discussion uh, among um, calm people or professionals and they're going to bring it into the school playground and they're going to start punching you. And suddenly the breeders don't have that kind of power because that kind of negative posting is probably over the top. It's probably um, you know embellished, but it's out there. Yeah. And there's, it's capital society. There's so much competition. Those things don't be aren't taken down. So why not try to resolve this? But if you're always using the hammer, we're taking the dog back. Yeah. Yep. There's nothing on the pet owner's side that can match that. Because you have you 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 convey that I have the ultimate power. I'll take the dog back. So once you go to that final level, then it's like a nuclear power dealing with a tiny country who says, if you don't follow what we're saying, you know, we're, we're going to obliterate you, but, but there's middle ground. There yeah. is. So and, what are the two things right, that a breeder should really want to put in their contract that facilitates that middle ground? Um, I'll give you mine after you give me yours, you show me mine and then I'll show you yours. Okay. All right. So here's one that comes to mind. Some type of a clause. It says the parties agree to, um, to either go to a, a kennel club uh, or go to some type of independent person to first communicate. And the parties agree that um, the, if they, this is more on the pet owner, if the pet owner does, if they somehow can't agree, there has to be a liquidated damages clause. So it has to be defined as what it means to sort of mediate or collaborate. But the failure to do that should require that either the pet owner or the breaching party, and then that has to be determined, there should be, the, the penalty should not be we're taking your dog back or we're posting horrible things about you. There has to be something that's less, um, less painful. And it's a shame we can't just get people to agree, but it should be without having to put some type of carrot or stick, but we agree to have phone conversations, and if we can't get along for one, some reason, we agree to each participate in this. Every county has a mediator, uh, and there's mediators. Yeah, in small claims court, you could just make sure that you go to small claims court and try the mediator, and, and maybe you'll get a mediator who actually is able to hold a safe space for everyone and at least let you, because I think, Jeremy, what you and I both are saying is you have to figure out how to have that conversation, that hard conversation. Um. It's, and the other thing is the decision as to if this person's been a good owner, it's so subjective. Yep. And I know breeders try to put in these objective criteria. You must do this by this, but 
those contracts are not should be unenforceable. So um, I think um, having the contracts, well, perhaps drafted by a lawyer or um, yeah, like that's said, a new that's a new concept. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it's. Because, you know, the lawyer would say to them, you know, this clause isn't enforceable, but I want that. And I go, yeah, but it's not going to stand up. So why don't we think of a way to do this in a way that, A, it'll be enforceable and B, it won't be so um, difficult for someone to read and abide by. Uh, Exactly. And and, you know, some breeders don't want to invest the money, but it's not that it's that they want to have all the terms to themselves because it's. Honestly, reviewing a contract, it's not an expensive thing. Nope. That is a way for me to-, to One puppy, to put it in literal terms, it's likely one puppy. Right. And that's a chance more for me, not to make money, but to uh, get to know the people, get to be a resource for them. And um, so- yeah, Because you and I have probably walked so many people off the ledge when they've called because their contract has been violated. And we've helped them because we've looked at their contracts before. We've helped them draft them in a way that isn't as onerous. And then we say, okay, so what's the bottom line? What do you want here? So perhaps, and I feel like I haven't given you two succinct ones, but perhaps as a mediation cause, we just agree to mediate any disputes um, rather than it be, I'm telling you, give me the dog back or else. And, you know, I love I love that because it doesn't take your right to sue if it doesn't work out away. Don't ever put an arbitration clause in in any of my contracts because that takes away your rights. And somebody else is making the decision. And I'm just I'm a conscientious objector to arbitration um, when it comes to pets, because the people know what's best for the pet, not the guy who's sitting in the room listening to them. And sometimes they need that. But I have to tell you that. If you or I get the clients to a point where they can have a conversation and we can hold a safe space, they'll come to a good resolution for the animal, which is really where we are. Right. And these are, you know, exactly. It's it's not about taking dogs. And I know I've sort of spoken more from the pet owner's point of view about what they can do, but they certainly do have obligations as well. And communication is one of them. But, um, you know, turning your back, that's one of the things I've found is I get the call from the breeder or the rescue. They don't call me. Yeah, they won't call me. And you know what? The thing is, when they get a call from me, now they call. But it shouldn't come to having a lawyer have to make compel somebody to make a call. So because then that's that you find that's adversarial. You know, it's it's interesting because, you know, when I when I look at at things for breeders to do and for owners to do, the first thing in my world is be transparent about every clause, have them sign every clause, ask them if they understand what their perspective and perception of that clause in that contract is, both as the breeder's interpretation and the owner's, the new owner's interpretation. You know, most new owners don't know what co-ownership is, what the requirement to, you know, hand it back um, to be shown, how much that will cost, like you said at the beginning. So one of mine is you, you really need to open lines of communication and maintain them from before you get the dog and read the contract before you get the dog um, and then maintain that relationship throughout because the only time, and you probably will possibly agree. The only time these people get down this rabbit hole is when they haven't spoken to each other for a sure. long time. Sure. And one last piece, and then I want to hear your two suggestions, but when you, when this, when a case like this goes to court, 
the last thing a judge wants to do is take a pet away from a family. Yep. And um, some of these arguments, while they may be in contract, it they can also seem to be based on what's in the best interest of the animal. And that's certainly where the breeder is trying to come from. And in most states, although New York, Rhode Island, California, Alaska, Tennessee are improving ahead of some and Illinois, of the, too, they have the well-being. They are authorized to start looking at what's in the well-being of everybody or or best interest of the dog. But a judge, they don't want to take a dog away from a family. And so I would think, and I haven't gone to court on many of these because we resolve them short, but I would think even though the breeder thinks they have all the power, that in court, a judge, they don't want to be the guy or the woman, man or woman, who says to this family with three kids, Oh, you didn't um, get spayed on by day 365. So you got to give your dog back. And that's why you would have instead a liquidated damages cause. And if if they breach the contract, they have to pay you some money as the penalty, but certainly not give you the dog back. You know, that's those are two really good points to make because the judges really don't want to take Fluffy away from the two kids and the parents. And so, yes, have a liquidated damages, but a reasonable liquidated damages. I had a uh, a case where they put a $250,000 liquidated damages for any violation of the contract. And I went, I think that has to be against public policy. Sure. I said, because the dog's only worth about maybe on a good day, $5,000. Even if you breed it every year from now until the time at end of time, you're only really going to maybe make 50 grand. I said, so, so a $250,000 liquidated damages. And that of course had its, its effect, Jeremy, my clients walked away from the dog. They said, uh, you know, we talked to our cousin, the lawyer, great. Um, yeah. and, and he said, don't even get involved with this person. They're crazy, walk away. Give the dog back, walk away. And I felt so badly because they had the dog for two years. They oh. had, had been friends with this person because they finished the stud dog for her. Um, and, and they were all crying, but they said, we can't afford a $250,000 um, fee. If, if we violate something. And one of the things they could have violated was having the dog groomed every two months by her daughter so that they could pay her daughter for the grooming fee. I mean, I'll send you this contract offline because oh, yeah. you'll love it. Uh, but it just, it, so my two things are, I, I stress all the time, um, have a one page contract as a breeder because anything more is going to create so many issues. And in that contract, make sure you put in it what everyone's vision about this relationship is at the time you enter into it. I said, because when you have a conflict, if you can go back as an attorney and say, okay, let's go look at that statement. What's the vision here that we had for the purpose of this dog with you? And you both wrote it and agreed to it. So we're gonna show the dog, we're gonna breathe the dog, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. We're gonna keep in touch. We're gonna have dinner together three times a week, whatever it is you know that you put in. It brings you back to that time when you didn't hate Jeremy because right. he didn't bring the dog to the dog show and broke the major. And anyone who's listening now who's a uh, breeder understands what that means. People get so upset when somebody doesn't come and breaks a major. And, you know, these are pet owners. They don't know majors from majors. They know nothing. So you really need to make sure you put something in the contract. These are my two contracts. Something in the contract that sets forth where your mind was at the time the contract was entered into. 
And aside from the fact that the dog should go to the vet within 72 hours, in my opinion, um, and that the dog should receive vet care every year, twice a year, um, and that the communication with the breeder should be, I don't know, a monthly basis, every three months, who knows, so that you can understand what your dog is going through while you have it and what your dog, what you can anticipate coming up, that need to do that because then you can talk about the grooming and then you can talk about the breeding and then you can, because quite frankly, if you want seven litters back from this dog and you're selling it as a pet, um, I will say this loud and proud, shame on you because you keep that dog that you wanna go forward with. Um, really don't put someone else in that position who just wants a cuddly pet that's going to sleep on their bed. And finally, of course, what Jeremy intimated, have some sort of clause in there that says before we hire Jeremy or Deborah to write nasty letters or make nasty phone calls, um, we are going to find someone who's going to help us find common ground and move forward so that we don't have to get to. And if you find someone who is a collaborative lawyer, God bless you because that will work beautifully for you. And if you find someone who is a mediator, even in small claims court, that'll be great for you uh, because you really want to make sure that you look at someone else's perspective and perception. Jeremy, you and I have talked about this. You know, my perspective and perception about breeders is different than your perspective and perception about breeders is different from somebody else's perspective. And so if we just have a chance to take a breath and, and listen, we might be able to say, oh, well, I didn't know that. And that sort of makes sense now that you would get upset if I did this. And what, what I think you're saying, and I love the one pager idea, is um, if the pet owner or and the breeder know the why behind something, you know, I have people trying to enforce a contract because they didn't get the training done between November 2020 and April 21. Well, there's a why there. And it's because of COVID and trainers won't come to the home. And that's the most effective uh, the people. These people. Have I wonder if these talk. people called me after they spoke to you, because I had somebody who bought a certain breed of dog that definitely needs training in the first 12 months, but they bought it in March of 2020 and they haven't taken it to a trainer yet. And so my answer to them was, and the breeder hadn't called them yet. So maybe yours, the breeder had called already, but this one, the breeder hadn't called yet. And I said to them, well, I would suggest you find um, a YouTube video on training and take that. I said, and um, ask around in your neighborhood. Maybe there's someone who is a certified animal trainer that can come and help you work with this, you know, 140 pound dog. I mean, there's a reason why that breeder wants you to take it to a, to an obedience class when it's a 140 pound dog in the so first year. Explain that. To, to be able to explain that or explain why the dog needs to be groomed so often, because Here's what happens if you don't on the type of fur or the hair that the dog has. And the hot spots, the mats, the everything else. Absolutely. But nobody takes the time to explain. Everybody just says, we have to do this. Well, why? And that's why I say, ask questions, be curious, and make sure that each of you sign every paragraph of the contract, because that will show that you read it, you asked questions about it, um, and you both came to a meeting of the mind. And if if a breeder or an owner says, oh, well, you'll not, you're not going to enforce that. And they go, oh, no, I'm not going to enforce that. Then say, okay, so we can cross this out. <laughs> exactly. Right. We can cross this out. If you, if you just told me you're not going to enforce this, well, let's cross that out. Because, because we all know um, parole evidence rule, if it's not in those four corners, yep. you can't necessarily, for the most part, you cannot introduce 
uh, evidence of any type of other modification that was verbally made. I'd love to have another talk with you about modifications, because let me tell you, I've had so many modifications by text um, that people rely on. And I'm sure you might have had a few as well. And then in the four corners of the contract, it says there can be no modifications unless in writing signed by both parties. But um, the person who got the text that says I can breed this dog uh, didn't remember that because it was three or four years ago. And in COVID, after five minutes, I forget everything. So I read everything at least twice. But you're exactly right, Jeremy. It just is. You really need to make sure that if somebody says they're not going to enforce something, then cross it out. You are such a great resource for pet owners and for 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 pet people, for people in the dog, cat, horse world, not just the owners, but we just solve everything. Yeah, I appreciate it. You know, I think you and I, and I'm going to say this out loud and proud, I think you and I should put together a program for maybe an hour or two where we talk about breeder contracts and what is good and what isn't good and for rescue contracts, what's good and what isn't good. And just put it out there for free for these people to hear, you know, it is only our opinion. So we'll say it's only our opinion. However, if you try to um, create something that fosters collaboration and communication and transparency, then you won't, you'll put Jeremy and I out of business and we're okay with that. That's all right. I'm all right. right. I'm all right with that. I know this about you. If you say it, then we are going to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'm doing that in September. I'm just going to bug you until then and we'll put something together. It'll be like an hour or two and we'll definitely, because, you know, people just don't understand that they don't have to be um, heavy handed. I think breeders don't understand. They don't have to be heavy handed. Owners, new new pet owners don't understand. They don't have to be fearful. They can ask questions. Um, I know a lot of them will say to me, well, Deborah, if I asked her that question, she might not sell me the dog. And I said, well, then you want to run with your hair on fire. It's certainly fun at times to be heavy handed. I know that as a lawyer, I know that, but it's really not that effective. No, just that's, isn't. that's why I mediate now because, you know, those days of, of doing that, I realized, oh shoot, the dog got lost in the, I'm going to be right and you're going to be wrong. Um, and I, uh, you and I both know where they're helping the parties um, maintain their relationship with their pets and with the people who have their pets, who are their pets. Um, but, but really we want to make sure the pets are always at the forefront of what's in the best interest of the pet right here. And I'll leave you with this. And uh, you know, the firm's only five years, six years old, but I, I still do a lot of reading about dogs and pets. And I always see this, that they're the number one contract is between the pet owner and the dog, because we've chosen to domesticate these animals who can do nothing on their own. And the the contractual obligations, the most important contract is what we promise to them. And they certainly, uh, maybe not uh, in writing, but they've certainly made promises to us that they often keep Oh, they keep all of them. They keep all of their promises to love us unconditionally, be there when we get home from work on a bad day and actually not go on that long walk if it's too hot out because it's too hot for me. And, you know, in that vein, I know you know this, but I'll let everybody know that on Wednesday nights, I hold a class every Wednesday night attended by a number of people. Um, It's called the map plan, navigating the journey your pet takes when you can't care for it. And we address these thorny issues of what if you co-own a dog and you want to make a plan and you want to give it to Jeremy because he's the next door neighbor. Um, 
you just have to be transparent. You have to communicate it, be transparent because the rescue really doesn't want it back and the breeder really doesn't want it back, but they want to know where it goes. They want to do their due diligence to know that it's going to a good place, who that good place is, and that that person knows that if something happens to them, they can give the dog back. So I do it every Wednesday night and we'll talk about that one day too, because you know you just brought it to my mind when you said that that contract with the dog, if you don't plan to navigate the journey your pet takes before something happens to you, I call it the eight Ds. So there's death, of course, that's inevitable, um, but there's disability, there's dementia, there's delay, there's disease, there's um, disaster, there's deployment, um, and there's, um, I forget, but oh, divorce. How can divorce. I forget divorce? Um, so, you know, those six Ds, if you can plan for those, if you make that and, and Jeremy and I talked about this before we got on, so we'll, this will be another one as well. Um, if people who get divorced, relationship breakups, uh, never make a plan for how to share the pet uh, when they like each other. And then they try to share the pet when they don't like each other. And, and that's often a much harder lift. So uh, come to a Wednesday night. It's at 630. I do it every Wednesday night. It's like clockwork and uh, 630 Eastern. And Jeremy, you know, everyone check out his new website, uh, Boston Dog Lawyers with an S um, dot com. And it is fabulous. It's got so much information for everyone. And I'm so grateful, Jeremy, that you took the time to be here with us because this is such an important conversation to have. And I am going to grab you for two hours in September. We're going to talk about this and I'm going to put it out on the AKC website as well as other places in national dog clubs that have called me and asked me, what are we going to do? And I'm going to say, well, you're going to come and listen to Jeremy and I talk about why you have to do better. That's a great opportunity for, for pet owners, but for me too. So thank you. I learn as much as I provide when I speak to you. So thanks for this opportunity. I love you, Jeremy. You know that. So this is Deborah Hamilton, Why Do Pets Matter podcast. And until next time, hug your pets for me because they do matter. Bye-bye. The Why Do Pets Matter podcast drops every Thursday and can be found on whichever platform you find your podcast. Subscribe now, invite your friends, and I cannot wait to have you join me in these conversations.